0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Doug Frost on the show, one of the rare people to be both a master sommelier and a master of wine. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm, I'm good. How are you? Very nice to see you. Thanks, Levy. Appreciate it. So you're a Kansas City man and have been for some time.
1: Yeah, indeed. Uh, moved there right out of college. My parents had moved to Kansas City during my college years. I had grown up around the Midwest, so Texas and Kansas and Missouri. And Kansas City was a default place, frankly, uh, for when I got out of school. Because when I got out of school, I immediately went to Europe and... And then just to, to bum around and quickly realize my money's not going to last me any time here at all. So I got to Asia, basically uh, hitchhiked or what have you to uh, Istanbul, took a train through the communist countries back then because I'm an old person. It was, you know, communist back then. In fact, I did go through Bulgaria without a visa, which caused me to jump off the train before we actually got to the Sofia train station and run for it. Probably not necessary, but it, it'll be good in the movie. I saw that John
0: LeCare movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a good one.
1: I'm pretty sure the guys who, you know, the, the policemen who were pissed off at me at this point were like looking at me going, I think he's running the wrong way. This is hilarious, you know. <laughs> Took bets on when I'd trip and fall or something. I don't know. So, yeah. So then I went to Asia and bummed around there Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, ran out of money and, and uh, energy. And came back home and my parents were in Kansas City. I'm like, hey, I got $4.81 or whatever the hell it was left in my pocket. Can I stay here for a couple of weeks?
0: Because that sounds a lot like you were trying out on your first job at the CIA. (laughs) You didn't make it. (laughs) And then you had to go back home.
1: If only there'd been a reason. I really just did it because I wanted to do it. I I knew a guy who uh, who I'd gone to college with who was living in India. And purportedly, I would go and hang out with Owen. I never found him. I was too busy just hanging out in India. India is a big place.
0: But I mean, what was hanging out? Were you into food at that time? or
1: uh, No, because w- I'm not a small person now. And when I came back, I do remember I came back. And when I got home, I stood on the, the scale and I weighed 119 pounds. You know, I'd been on the road as a, as a guy living hand to mouth and even sleeping on the streets for a time in, in India because I didn't have any money. <laughs> So what is dysentery like? Yeah, it's, it's not actually, um, I was for a short time in a cholera clinic. It turned out I just had basically food poisoning of, of a sort, uh, dysentery and a couple of other things, and not cholera. But I was in the cholera clinic for about five days. I'd, I'd met some people, a guy from Goa, his girlfriend from Massachusetts, and a woman from Philadelphia. And the four of us were bumming a little bit together. And, and they hung out for a while waiting for me till I got better. And that was nice. It was yeah. They were super nice people. We 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 had a good time. We got along. But then when we got to Pakistan, my tendency to not have visas, not have my p- papers in order, finally caught up with me, and they threw me off the train. And I waved bye to those people and never saw them again. Um, although the woman from Philadelphia, was pretty good with the fact that I never saw her again. That was that
0: was a good decision all around. <laughs> You make it sound like you're not a, a good catch, but you've been in, married for quite a long time, right? It's like 31-year marriage?
1: Yes, I, yeah, almost 31 years. Uh, my wife is a saint. I am not easy to be married to. Uh, and I guess I would say in my defense or, or in defense of the marriage that, as she puts it, the reason that we're still married after 30-plus years is that I'm out of town a lot. That works out.
0: Maybe it's a self-deprecation as well, because it seems to be part of the... But I mean, you have often chosen a non-conventional career path, I think. I will have to admit that I
1: never chose anything per se, that it was absolutely opportunistic, that... When I got back, I caught up with a friend and we were trying to produce theater because my degree is in theater, but we needed more cash. So I went out on the road and started selling educational programs to to high schools and grade schools and such. And we never got enough money together to get the production off its its feet here in New York because that's what we were trying to do. Meanwhile, a girlfriend had moved to New York and New York was way too small for both of us. I was like, nope, not moving to New York yet. Got to stay away from her. So New York's out, Philly's out at this yeah, exactly, point. Exactly, And yeah. you're like, KC sounds great. Case is perfect, I'll stay. And things just kind of, you know, things didn't, there was no traction. I couldn't figure out what to do. I was working in a restaurant like everybody does. So I got this gig at a white tablecloth restaurant. And in the first week, the wine steward pulled me aside and said, what the hell? You are really good at selling wine. Do you know a lot about wine? I was like, I don't know anything about wine. What I knew was that when I was 15 years old, my uncle had a little wine cellar and he walked me through it and he let me pick the wine and I I picked basically, I picked a, a Louis Martini special select Pinot Noir, uh, as, as one does. Yes, 1970. And it was delicious. And it really stuck with me. I really was fascinated by it. And, and uh, You were like,
0: I thought martini was a cocktail. Yeah, I,
1: exactly. No, my dad drank scotch on the sly. We were very Midwestern. You know, he'd come home and go into the kitchen, and you'd hear the clinking of glasses. And then you'd hear somebody rinsing a glass out. And then, he, you know, cupboard closing. And then he'd come out of the kitchen. He was in a much better mood. Much better mood. But no one, drank of course i remember actually i remember the first time i saw my mom not drunk but she was lit and i i was like at this point easily 15 or 16 and it was one of those i have never seen that before that is kind of funny i was a bad kid though so i was drinking at 14 and you know smoking pot at 14 and i was a bad kid
0: the first time i ever actually saw my dad smoke a cigarette Oh, it was a big shock because he'd actually been smoking for years, but hiding it. He Is to that right? He <laughs> keeps cigarettes behind books and things like that. Oh
1: my God. Yeah. My mom would try to keep it hid, but there, you know, occasionally it'd be like right out, but they, they stopped early on. They really were concerned about, you know, its impact on their health, but on us too, on the three boys, you know? So you had a couple brothers. Yeah. My, my two older brothers, um, were there to sort of pave the way for me so I could be the utterly horrid child that I turned into, uh, in my teenage years. I'm very grateful they didn't send me away like they <laughs> intended to do. Although maybe it would have been the same outcome. You know, maybe I would have gravitated to restaurants and done all that. Because there's, there's part of the, the restaurant scene that I loved was the theater of it, the play acting of it. I certainly loved the food and wine aspect of it. But i I love the milieu itself that there was some theater to it all and and maybe a little bit of a con job working sometimes as well, I mean its just I love that I guess that sense of agency that I had in my own station that i can I can do anything I want to do here, man. This is fun, and these people are let me take them on a ride and and I felt like that's been the connection with me and and some other folks over the years that we have all felt that real almost lust of. What can I do with these people that are sitting in my station? Let's do something with these people. Let's let them completely get out of control and have a great time.
0: So what era was that when you first got into restaurants?
1: I was in uh, restaurants in the late 70s, so mid to late 70s. So very, uh, very bad hedonistic era. <laughs> we were bad people, but we had a great time. We drank we drank like kings because wine was so cheap. It was amazing. I, that that was my friend, John Scupney, the guy who basically in that first week was he was the wine steward? Now he's the owner of Lang and Reed Winery. He said, "You should you need to come to a wine tasting." I was like, "Okay." So we go to this wine tasting, and we taste a bunch of Bordeaux's. And and either that tasting or the next tasting, I remember it was like, "Okay, next time you need to bring twenty five bucks because we're all going to throw twenty five bucks in the pot because we're drinking one of each of the first growths." You could do that, you know. it's so like, "Oh, good." I wondered what Lafitte tasted like, and suddenly it I, it was a very distinct experience in the sense that. I had never smelled things before. And suddenly I was being asked to smell things. And now that I was smelling things, I was smelling everything. And it was, it was a real bizarre change. I was, in the th- in, in, you know, I was in the theater. I was trying to get a gig. I know it's Kansas City, but hey, we, you know there's jobs everywhere. Trying to do some radio, trying to do whatever. And this was just to the pay the bills. And all of a sudden I'm going, this is fun. I like this stuff. I'm, I'm going to keep doing this too.
0: What was the restaurant scene like in Kansas City?
1: I was at a a pretty traditional steakhouse called Plaza Three, but it was untraditional in the sense that it probably had, at this point in time, and this is, uh, by now, this would be, gosh, what is that, 78, 79. um, There were maybe 500 wines on the wine list, so it was a sizable 1970s list. The wine steward, John Scupney, like I said, was a, a smart kid. He was out of the Art Institute, Kansas City Art Institute, and uh, but he was into wine and ended up moving to Napa. Um, the, the restaurant scene had people like that that were really quite interesting and interested in it all and it was uh that restaurant was owned by a company called Gilbert Robinson and Joe Gilbert and Paul Robinson were fascinating guys uh, particularly PR as we called him he had a lot of times he was the creative force and Joe was the operational guy and they you know come in and they they made Plaza 3 a pretty place they made it a vibrant wine place because they had they had wine cellars they were into wine they had hundreds of, uh, well, well over 100 restaurants around the country, but a concentration of them certainly on the East Coast and in Kansas City. The East Coast, because that's where the action was, Kansas City, because that's where they were from. And Kansas City was this crossroads uh, back in the late 19th century. They built one of the first railroad crossings there um, when everybody else was worried about losing their shipping lane. They built bridges and railroad crossing that allowed people to to concentrate there. And so Kansas City has a history of being a, a place with a lot of Restaurants and hotels and a hospitality industry. So there's that foundation. And then you get to GR, this company that owned Plaza 3 and a bunch of Houlihan's and all these uh, other places, a bunch of which were white tablecloth. And if you wanted to be in the company, in one of those 125, whatever it was, restaurants, you come to Kansas City and you train, and you'll probably be here for six months, training at least, and then you're going to go someplace else. So um, what happens is and, – and they go through a wine training. Now, the wine training wasn't super high-end, but it was certainly more than anybody did back in the 70s, at least most places. And, uh, in fact, Kevin Zarelli used to make a, a regular trek into Kansas City because he was needed to help teach. Uh, they brought him in at uh, the American restaurant where I ended up working. So anyway, so you have GR, with all these managers, and as soon as somebody decides this whole corporate thing is stupid, this is not for me, I am out. A lot of them leave town, but a lot of them stay and open their own little place because they're creative, they're well-trained, they've all been trained in wine. And so you have all these restaurants that were constantly popping up, and they might work, they might not work, and they might only seat 50 people, but everybody had a serious wine list because they'd all been trained that that's how you make money. That's what your customers want. And so I'm not exaggerating. I, I remember in the early 80s, I was writing for a magazine in Kansas City so I did a survey of the top 50 restaurants in Kansas City and the average number of wines by the glass was 25. It was crazy. I mean that that in the, again in the early 80s people just didn't do that and it was something I was really proud of and it and, and it made people feel pretty adventurous around wine cuz you know your risk is so low. And people would come in from out of town, (laughs) maybe shouldn't name names, but uh, Lydia. And, you know, people would come in and do the, oh, no, no, you don't want to have a bunch of wines by the glass because it'll just hamper your bottle sales. I'm like, no, 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 this is a different market. This is a weird market. Trust me on this one. Come in, pour a bunch of wines by the glass and people will embrace you. People will try different things. And and they certainly did. And they're still cranking in Kansas City. So uh, obviously uh, Lydia and, and, and Joe figured it out <laughs> pretty quickly. But yeah, I think that was part of what made Kansas City pretty cool. That and, and pretty adventurous in terms of wine a, as well as food. But in truth, you know, it's not as dynamic anymore to me. We don't have that entity creating all that dynamism. The only only reason we're still dynamic if we are is because we're a city of over two million people now. Back in those days, we were well, you know, we're like 750,000 people or so. But today it's a a big place. And so there's just a lot of humans and some of them are creative and cool.
0: I mean, you've chosen to stay there all these years and you have high powered certifications. So theoretically, you could have gone and lived and worked in some other place, but you chose to stay in KC. And why is that?
1: A multitude of reasons, certainly that I was trying to write from the get-go. In fact, that's what motivated me to go after the the MW and the MS. I thought maybe somebody will pay attention to me now. I'm from Kansas City. They think I'm an, a wine idiot. And now maybe they'll pay attention to me. Didn't work, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so for me, if I'm going to write, I'm going to have to live cheap. So Kansas City's cheap. You know, It's an inexpensive place to live. Probably more significant was, to use an example, would be, so I got offered a job here in New York and I was very excited about it. I thought it was a great job. I thought it was a great gig. Turns out it probably would have folded quickly because things went south so fast. But anyway, who knows? Can't say. And I went to my wife and I was like, okay check this out. This is really great money. And this is a great gig. They'll actually f- help us find a place to live in the short term. And, yeah, you know, we can figure out what to do, you know, how to deal with the kids and all that stuff. And, and my wife looked at me and she said, well, I, I think you should go. I was like, well, no, I mean, you know, the four of us, I mean, well, you know, we, we can find a place further that all, we can all live. She said, no, no. I think you should go. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. I'm so good here. I'm so fine. Can't perfect. And then the thing was, we had little kids, and I was traveling a lot. And I wasn't – back in those days, uh, too, I was in the restaurant business off and on, and I wasn't the nicest guy to live with because the restaurant business is tough on on family. And, and uh, so, like I said, she's a saint, and she just said – you want to go? Please go. <laughs> it's like, no, I want to keep my family intact. I'll just stay where I'm at. Um, we had a support system there. My dad was a big help. One of my brothers lived there at the time, and his wife could be counted on sometimes to help out. And yeah, you know, it just really felt like my wife made the right decision for us.
0: In terms of your career through the beverage business, I feel like you made some key mentors and you made some key friends, and they stayed with you for a long time. And you kind of did things as a class in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, certainly. I, I, I believe that deeply. And it has been that my career has been this opportunistic thing that's kind of wacky where uh, opportunity pops up and I go run with it because a friend has said, you know, who might do this pretty well? I got this friend named Doug. You probably haven't heard of him. He lives in Kansas City. I've gotten that a whole lot, you know, but, and then I try to do a good job and I try to fulfill their expectations. And and things would work out. When I'd go searching for work, it was always a, not a disaster, but it was often not a pleasant experience. When I waited for work to come to me, it almost always invariably was a great experience.
0: Well, I think so often in restaurants, but also in beverages, having a connection with someone on a personal level makes it a whole different transaction when you are looking for work. If you're just sending in a cold call email, it's probably not going to go very far.
1: Yeah, it's really true. I, I, as somebody who's hired people over the years, that's the first thing I want to know is like, you know, who are your references? And then I want to talk to them. I don't want to just go, so how to go? Did they show up to work on, you know, it's like, I'm like, tell me about them. Tell me what they're like. And, and fortunately, I haven't had to hire and fire too much. I don't think that's something I enjoy. And I'm probably I'm not very good at it as a result. But nonetheless, as you say when somebody can vouch for you. And then also when somebody can turn around and say, by the way, this is what they like. This is the kind of thing they're looking for. Rather than you walk in blind. I, I've had that experience where some restaurant entity wants some advice or some information or some guidance or or what have you. And I'm like, good. Okay. The, one of the first things I need to see is your last year's numbers. I mean, for the 12 month broken down by bottle, broken down by shift as much as we can. They're like, well, that's, that's not information we like to share. And I'm like, well, if you want good information from me, you have to give me good information. Well, you know, when, it, when it's a, a situation where it's a friend of a friend, the trust level is so much stronger, you end up getting much more information. And so you can be better at your job for them. And I would have to say, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if a better job was done because so often my jobs are sort of one-off and then I'm out the door, but uh, a lot of them do come back. so So that's a good thing. But most of the time, it's I, I do a lot of one-offs, and my career has been that, which is uh, scary a lot of the time. You, you often don't know where your next paycheck is coming from or how you're going to pay next month's bills because you really have nothing on the books. And as I say, for me, the sort of key was maybe only learning in the last five years or so, even though I've been doing it for two decades, is be patient, be cool, it'll be okay. Do your work, do your other stuff, get some writing done, get some other stuff done. The The jobs will come along. You'll be all right. They may not come along exactly when you need them, but they'll come along because of this network of friends. And the restaurant business it is so, <laughs> I mean, we really do all change jobs so quickly and everybody runs you know, from here to there and everybody, I mean, all you have to do is stand in one place in a restaurant and you'll see a whole bunch of different people. So if you're a good actor, and, and that's maybe my favorite thing about the wine business, the restaurant business, the, the bar business, if you're a good actor, people know about it. If you're a bad actor, people know about it. So the jerks get shoved out. There's always stories, I know, but in general, the jerks don't last. That's a beautiful thing.
0: One of your first shifts was from restaurants into distribution, right?
1: Yeah. I was uh, actually running a, a, a wine program for a hotel and we had uh, one restaurant, uh, one bar, and then one banquet, large, you know, massive banquet facility that could you know, see and so I did the wine buying for the hotel, and one of the guys that called on me, again, somebody who is still one of my closest friends to this day, a guy named Mendel Kohn, um, he's now a wholesaler in San Francisco and has been for decades. But he was calling on me, and then he said, well, you know, my boss is leaving, so I'm going to get hired to be the boss. Can I hire you to take my place? And I'm like, I guess. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know." And, and immediately, the job was a fantasy. It was, it, was a, it was a dream come true kind of job. It was brilliant. I had this incredible book and I'm selling like everything. And I immediately hook up with uh, or start selling to a guy named Bob Bath, who's a master sommelier today. And his uncle owned a restaurant there and we grinded it out to get a grand award list. And I say we, I mean, it's Bob's restaurant and his list, but I felt like I was absolutely neck deep in that, that whole process. Well, this dream job It didn't go so smoothly um, because three months in, uh, it was a company called McKesson, the huge McKesson Corp. And they owned at that point 30-plus wholesalers around the country. And we heard this rumor that they were going to sell out. And it's like, oh, come on. They're one of the largest corporations in America. That's ridiculous. Who could buy them out? And we were closed down about a week later. And I was out of a job after three months in this dream job, you know. And and so Mendel and I went out and got roaring drunk and at like 7 a.m. the phone rings and I have, you know, one of the most heroic hangovers of, of my life. I sort of, oh. and then, and it was a guy named David Thompson who ran another distributorship who was one of the most insightful German wine guys I've ever known. Certainly introduced me to German wine from the 70s onward. Anyway, he's like, he was running a distributor. He's like, you have a job with me today. I'm like, what? You know, And uh, it didn't go super smoothly, but it went obviously smoothly enough. Um, ended up with a different wholesaler, you know, but it all, it all worked out. I spent 15 years in the wholesale fights and, uh, and that was kind of crazy. That's a business I don't long to ever go back to, but I learned a lot. The way Mendel hired me, I still remember I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. And he said, well, what's your favorite thing about your job right now? And I said, my favorite thing is I write a wine list for this restaurant, write a program for the bar, and I do the banquet wine list as well. And he said, how would you like to write a hundred wine lists? So I'm like, okay, sign me up. I love that. And that's, you know, and that's still was so much fun, maybe because I'm ADHD or whatever it is, but it's fun, you know, do these different projects and see how a restaurant wine list must reflect the chef, the chef's needs, the kitchen's needs, the operational capabilities, the concept, all that stuff.
0: I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about you is you're kind of one of the great generalists in an era where a lot of people have moved more into specialization over the, say, the last decade, two decades, I feel like. Watching beverage in general, I see people say like, well, I am the daiquiri guy, or I I am the sherry person, or (laughs) I do orange wine. You know, like people have a thing. (laughs) And, you know, I think coming out of doing a lot of different, you know, restaurants, bars, outlets, and then also working for distributors with large books across the world. You know, we have Chateau and Estates. We also have KJ. We have Greek wine. We have, I am the representative here in Kansas City for all these wines. I feel like it kind of shaped in a way how you approach the subject later cuz you never really you you became close to certain countries certain wines you, but you never really got pigeonholed that way you've kind of continued on
1: yeah yeah you're you're absolutely right and and it probably would have been better for my career had i handled things differently but like, say, my sort of mind is bouncing around all the time, and I wasn't smart enough to take the meds for (laughs) ADD, so I just kept bouncing around. And I do find it intriguing. And as you say, being a wholesaler with all those in the book, I was going to have to be smart about all of them and and well-informed on all those categories. And I live in Kansas City, and I always come back to that. This is a place that doesn't really need a burgundy specialist, Certainly isn't a place that needs a Greek specialist. What it needs is somebody who understands how to kind of tie all those different threads together. And so often I've been asked, well, gee, why, you know, why'd you focus on Spain or why'd you focus on Portugal or why'd you focus on Greece or or you know Pisco for that matter or whatever? You know, and the answer is always the same, which is, well, the world doesn't need another Burgundy expert. We're pretty well covered on those. So maybe I should focus on stuff that the world hasn't, maybe, in my opinion, paid enough attention to. Going back 30 and 35 years ago, I really did dive as deep as I could into German wine because I loved that stuff. I still love that stuff. And and back then, there wasn't much out there. There were very few people giving it much respect, space in the newspaper or what have you, so that was fun, but I think I've always been drawn to the story that hasn't been told yet, or at least as far as I can tell, and then I want then I live in a market that isn't necessarily going to dive deep with me in that, so they need me to to draw it back into the more general
0: general pool of wine as it were I think that seems to follow through in the writing that you do as well, the sense that Anyone reading this could understand it, even if we talk about some fairly specialized topics within the article. And then also that you tend to look for subjects that are what's not out there already. What is there not 15 books on?
1: Yeah, I I, I hope so. I, I certainly try to do that. I, I will always look at Writing as, as the, the hurdle that I can't ever surmount. And it's funny, because back in, back in school, you know, they, they run you through the SATs. and It's like, um, my weakest suit is English, is writing. It's like, well, let's do that. You know, that's what I really want to focus on. Is, is that true? The, yeah, it's really true. I mean, you're
0: actually a good writer.
1: I hope, so. I, I feel like I have so much left to learn about how to write. And, and I've, well, I've, I'm hopefully not I've gotten better.
0: that but... you're Tolstoy. I'm saying that <laughs> you, you have a, um, an ability to be as approachable in the writing as you are in person, which is, you know, not everyone can do that. And the thing that I, the thing I really like about your writing is that you make a point of using personal anecdotes a lot. From all of this kind of cast of characters that you'll bring into an article. Yeah. And I'll learn things about those people that typically I don't learn in a wine article. And so I guess this is the kind of show I do, right? Where I talk to people about their lives. Mm -hmm. So I find that appealing is that you put it into a human context. You do it a lot. It's not like you do um, family histories and you say like, well, this person is great grandfather, but you, you'll do a quote and then you'll, you'll explain who that person is through something that sets the stage about how it is that they got to be there or their style of winemaking or something important about them as a person. Uh, Not everyone does that.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I, it's a rock. I'll just keep trying to push uphill because it's, it's, it just, it just feels good when you know I put pen to paper, or when I drop my fingers on the keyboard, and 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 I may have to torture that sentence for <laughs> for you know way too many minutes uh, or hours. Um, but you know, I'm uh, it's it's something that's worth doing. Uh, that's uh, that's all, and and it's something worth doing because of those people, because that's the thing that absolutely swept me away about wine. One was the stuff was talking to me in ways that I just didn't know a a, a drink could talk to me and 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 I wanted to express that in some way and that's pretty you know that's pretty uh flaky kind of stuff to try to put in into words but a lot of times it's easier when you when you talk to the person who then takes that role and says no here's why it's so important to me and it's easier to believe if you will it's easier to buy into that and and I think that's the that's one of those things that just grabs us about wine is that it can do that. It can have this damned personality and then we interact with it. And then we talk about that interaction. And and if it's a really cool winemaker, he or she has some very strong ideas about how they got it to be there.
0: Because I think a lot of people look at Doug Frost and they say, well, he's one of a handful of people in the world that has these two certifications. But I can tell when someone really knows you, because the first thing they say is not that, but he's a cool, nice dude.
1: Uh, I, I, maybe, maybe cause I had two older brothers who would beat the crap out of me when I acted like a complete ass. Um, you know, I don't know. I, again, Kansas City, you know, you don't be, don't be putting on airs in Kansas City. They will call you on it. And they still think, you know, I'm kind of a knucklehead there half the time too. So, um. I just, I, I just look at it as very fortunate to have friends who kept me on the straight and narrow. And I hope I don't act like, a in the words of William S. Burroughs, who is is definitely somebody I read a whole lot of. Um, <laughs> um, in fact, I taught this to my kids. I wanted them to learn this. There was a, a, a kid who on the local University of Kansas radio station was interviewing Bill Burroughs because Bill Burroughs lived in Lawrence for a while. And, and yeah, we'd go and see him speak and he was quite a character. And anyway, so this kid is like, I don't know. He thinks he's going to be Mr. Reporter. (laughs) And so he says to Bill Burroughs, who bear in mind, of course, Bill Burroughs uh, shot his wife in the head, trying to shoot an apple off her top of her head. And some people say it wasn't an accident. But, you know, anyway, an irascible fellow uh, at best as well. so the guy says to William S. Burroughs, and it's on live radio, and I'm in a in a in a uh, like a drugstore in Lawrence, walking around just buying some stuff, and I hear him say, "Mr. Burroughs, is there um, anything that you would do differently in your life? I mean, if you could do it over again, is there anything that you would do differently?" And he says, "Jesus fucking Christ! I'm lucky if I get through a day without acting like a perfect shit." <laughs> And I left the f bomb out of there, but I did teach that to my children. That, if you will, the, the the moral of this story is we act like assholes without knowing. So don't go out and act like an asshole. I mean, because you know when you give yourself permission to do that, trust me, you've already done it pretty badly. So I, I don't know. I'm just trying not to be a complete asshole. But I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure I've acted like a perfect shit already two or three times today.
0: Well, uh, you did find the motivation within yourself to pass these two tests, and you kind of did it as a Personal thing. And how did that come about?
1: Well, I I, I heard about the MW. I was knee-deep in the wholesale business and a wine wholesaler. And I was and within the group in Kansas City were a lot of people who are very serious about wine, you know, people like Bob Bath, you know, and Mendel Kahn, David Thompson, and and then this larger group. And going all the way back into the Late 70s, early 80s, we'd blind each other on wine all the time just for fun. This is what you did for sport, you know, mess with each other. And so we did that a lot. And when I heard about the MW, I thought, damn, that thing sounds like like for me, not to mention the only people who will take my writing as a little alternative newspaper in Kansas City can't get anybody else to pay attention to me. So yeah, let's roll with this. And I tried to get into it. And then I had to walk away before I really could, because I was now the general sales manager of a statewide wholesale company with a a little kid on the way, this, no, this is a dumb idea. And then my first child was born. I thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to jump back in again. Plus the MW came back. So I took the test, the uh, sort of the initial test. And that's the one that Ron Wiegand, who was my predecessor in getting through both, Ron passed and I, I flunked it spectacularly. I think it was a fantastic failure. And so I came back the next year and then I passed that section, which meant that I was, uh, it was okay for me to prepare to, well, to sit the exam. Meanwhile, before I was ready to take that second try at that, you know, very first exam, <laughs> my friend Mendel calls me, he's living in San Francisco. And he says, Hey, I'm, I'm going to take the master sommelier uh, first and second level exams. It's like, well, what's that? He's like, oh, it's the it's master sommelier, and, and the first level's introductory, second level's advanced, because the certified didn't exist there. It's in Chicago. You should come up. I'm like, when is this? He's like, owned oh, two weeks. I was like, well, how long does this take? Oh, it's, it's like seven days. I'm like, I, I'm managing a company. I can't get away for seven days. So we'll call Evan Goldstein. You've met him. No, I hadn't. But he said, but tell Evan, you're my friend, and that you're really well-informed, and that you don't need to take the introductory. You'll just take the advance. So I call Evan, who's like, aha. Yeah, so yeah, just going to taste. Aha. Okay, so you know, but he let me do it, and I did pass by the skin of my teeth, I'm sure. And it, but it was one of those knocks in the head. Um, it was one of those moments where I realized that I wanted to be a peer of these people, and and that's what really motivated me. It was like I don't really know where this ends up, and it really, it frankly didn't have any impact upon my career as I passed those exams. Nobody knew what they were, but I wanted to hang out with these people. I just really loved these people. These restaurant people made me so happy. And these MWs I were meeting, they just, they blew my mind. Man, I just want to hang out with these people. These are my peeps, you know, and that did it for me. That was, and within Kansas City, I feel like I had people who were learning alongside me as well. Nobody went on to take either of those exams, uh, unfortunately, but They were great blind tasters and we practiced a lot. And I I had people, if you will, that helped me. But I also believe strongly that because I was nobody's pony, nobody was looking at me. I was just some guy from Kansas City. He'll never pass. And, you know, so I didn't have any pressure. I could walk in and do my thing and not feel like I'm letting a whole bunch of people down.
0: I see the pressure really get to
1: some people. I do too I, I think it's so unfortunate. you should do it for yourself that's the only reason you do it and and so if you're trying to do it for some external reason I, I think you're just going down the wrong pathway anyway it, it doesn't necessarily end up in a job anyway. What it does is it it hopefully it teaches you many things and as as I say, I felt like I wanted to be hang out with these people and be their peer. Um, And I've felt strongly about that ever since. Even those people that don't pass, the people who put themselves through the ringer and try to get through it, those are relationships I never want to lose. I really value and and trust and and believe in those people too. You know, the exam's the exam.
0: From the executive level, because you've worked in both organizations on kind of like a board of directors level for the states. Yes. What does that look like? Has that peer group changed? Is it younger now or is it?
1: Yeah, yeah, oh, it's changed radically. I mean when I, when I finished uh, the MS, I was uh, there were what, less than 20 of us or something like that. And when I finished the M.W it was like that too. Certainly less than 20 of us in North America, I should say. And uh, the organi- both organizations have grown a lot. I'm su- super pleased to point out that the North American MWs are almost half female. That's so cool. The North American M- MSs, like women in the restaurant business uh, worldwide, are not. Uh, I think we're like 15% female or something like that. And that needs to change. And, and so, so, yeah, there have been good changes. And then there have been slow, very painful incremental changes. It's definitely a different – both are, are different organizations than when I joined. What would be examples of that? I would say the Master Sommelier – program Has been influenced by the Somme movie. You know, there's a new, when I started out, the sommelier, the cliche was the guy with the big clanging, you know, cup around his neck just trying to sell some expensive Bordeaux and being a snooty. Jerk. Um, Now we have incredibly impeccably dressed sommeliers who just want to sell you wine you've never heard of before, which it turns out their brother or their cousin or their best friend is actually importing. And I I hate both those images. And I really resent both those images. That's not what we're about. We're supposed to be about making people happy and pleased to be in the restaurant, so they'll spend some money and stick around and maybe come back and bring friends. Uh, You know, we're salespeople, for God's sakes. We're selling them what they want, but we're also there to show them things they may not have found yet that they will want. Uh, But but, uh, there is... There's definitely a side of the sommelier business that is is quite unfortunate. I certainly regret that 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 Saw movie had nothing in it about hospitality. I mean that that's just like come on, man. That's the point. The guy who directed it is a good guy, and he did a great job. It's a you know it's a a well made movie, but it is not for me. I, I, I'd put it that way. We're here for hospitality. We have, I think, elevated the wine industry in the hospitality sector. You know, it's like. There's more stuff going on in restaurants today from a wine standpoint than there was when when we started. And I hope we've helped in some small measure
0: to, to do that. Do you really think so? I mean, I understand from when you first started, but you're involved in a restaurant opening now, right? Yeah, I am. Do you think that wine programs are more elaborate than in the 90s?
1: Oh, yeah, we had the gargantuan lists and all that craziness. Yeah, I I thankfully know, because that gargantuan list was the reflection of over-exalted uh, Somalia ego, and it wasn't for the customer. And so now what we're seeing, or at least I I believe what we're seeing, is a more stripped down program that has fun and cool stuff in there, and that's evolving all the time, so that there's a lot of different wine that will show up at various points in in time, Um, but it is not a here's, you know, we're going to, we're going to have the wine list over to you. We just got to get the two wheeler and we need a couple of guys to help drop it on the, on the table. That's crazy. I don't know why we ever got into that, but uh, you know, I guess we were chasing awards and stuff like that.
0: So what is important to you now, if you're going to advise on opening a restaurant wine program, what's important to Doug Frost? Cause you know, at this point you're a generation or two older than a lot of people who are facing some of those same decisions. And I mean that in a good way. <laughs> no, it's
1: all good. I am who I am, you know? <laughs>
0: experience to the table. So in your mind now, what's important that maybe wasn't important in, in the past or vice versa? The customer is more
1: adventurous than before. They're more experimental than before. And and that's beautiful. I love this. And at the same time, you're dealing with customers who have a stronger sense of what they want Then uh, 30 years ago or 35 years ago when I was walking up to a table and people are kind of like, I've heard of Merlot, you know, (laughs) and it'd be like, okay, I have to lead them through, talk them through. Now it's like some people really want to be challenged. Some people want to drink mainstays, things that everybody's heard about. Some people want their cake bread and their silver oak or whatever. Great, my job is to make them all happy. Now I have to do that on a wine list that has fewer than 100 wines, so that's my job. And then my biggest job of all, as happened with this restaurant that I'm working on now, is that they were like, well, what kind of wine list would you do? And I'm like, I'm not gonna do any wine list until you show me what Chef has in mind. It's, it's you know, as, as Steve Olson and, and I used to love to run around the country and say, wine is a condiment to food. The food is first. Food is everything, and wine is there to make the food taste better. And if I'm not focused on that, then I, I, you know, don't know my, you know, I don't know shit from apple butter, as we say where I come from. So,
0: so something that's interesting about you and Steve Olson is that you've both spent a lot of time in the spirit side of beverages as yes. well as wine. Yes. Coming from the spirit side, how would you answer the same question? If you're doing a restaurant opening today, what is important with spirits and cocktails and back bar that maybe wasn't before or?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. The world is so remarkably changed since Steve and I were out there and the, you know, trying to convince people that, in fact, we didn't even try to convince people. We just, uh, that, that fresh juice was everything. We would just tell them that it was and then show them a cocktail with fresh juice in it and then show them, you know, stuff out of the gun and say isn't that different and then not really worry about it too much when everybody went yeah but we can't afford to do that and be like I know but wouldn't it be great and and the world today is so different it's so great that the bar scene is fantastic on the other hand you get these extreme examples of of the the cocktail bar you know the one that you walk up to and they hand you the book and you're like well this is going to take a while can I get a beer while I'm uh, reading your cocktail book and and then the cocktail you order that you go Go. That's going to take a while. There's 37 ingredients. Could I get another beer while you're actually making that cocktail? Since it looks like it'll take 10 minutes, that's crazy. That's crappy service. Uh, I remember a few years back going to Tails and getting a getting a laugh out of the audience because I, I started off by saying. That um, there's a bar in, in New York that you can walk into, and when you walk up to the bartender and you say, um, "Yeah, w- wondering what uh, kind of beer you have." Oh yeah, the bartender responded because he actually did respond in this way. Oh yeah, yeah, no problem. You want a beer? It's not a problem. What you do is you walk out that door right there. You turn to your left. You go down about three doors, and they got a lot of beers in there. <laughs> and the audience laughed, and I just snapped. I was like, "The fact that you think that's funny means you're the problem. That's not funny. That's horrid service. That is that is mean. That." is mean-spirited. You know, we're here to make people happy. It's one of the reasons that Olson and I uh, really bonded going back a few decades ago and teaching together was it's just this ferocious belief that service... It, here's my favorite line about it. My friend Madeline Trefon taught me this. She said to me, if you will, she said... Dougie, <laughs> I derive dignity through service and it was just like okay that's everything just wrapped up in those those few words I get it that's exactly right and I actually had an epiphany about a year ago about this because it's still I still believe in that um it, it really it re- I really I really do I really believe in that it's it's it ennobles us all when we serve each other and it just turns out you know I'm giving people food I didn't even Cook or even buy, you know. The chef made it, and then I bring wine that I happen to buy, but somebody else put their sweat and labor into, (laughs) and then I take credit for it. Hey, isn't that great? (laughs) Aren't I smart? You know, it's all I'm doing is dropping stuff off. I'm a delivery boy, you know. (laughs) But yeah, so what do I bring to it? I better bring hospitality. I better bring kindness and compassion, and and you know, just that feeling of we're glad you're here. We want you to have fun while you're here. We want you to enjoy this.
0: Sometimes when I speak with people who worked in restaurants in the 80s and to some degree in the 90s, there's a sense of purpose to what they're doing that I I don't always find now. The kind of sense of purpose that I might find with a younger sommelier would be like, there's this person in Slovenia that needs me to be an ambassador for them. Yeah, And that's a sense of purpose, too. Agreed. But the kind of sense of purpose that I found in the 80s and 90s, and I, I sort of hear that in some of the things you're saying, is like, we're trying to do something elevated fine dining and make that approachable to people yeah and i think in the era where you know so much has moved to fast casual and service staff has gotten younger because people have kind of been moved out of older generations on the floor i don't always hear that same sense there's not that that used to be a binding perspective for the the dining room team yeah and the chef's yeah. to have. And it really made you feel good about your work. And I remember that, that was always associated with really great general managers. Yeah, it sure is. Isn't that the truth? I, I, I'm glad you said that. I didn't, really, I, I didn't
1: even think that thought until you, you said that, that it's true. I can associate it with particular general managers who just inspired us to, to be real, but to be at the table because you want these people to have a great time. I had this, this like I say, this epiphany that. Um, it's (laughs) maybe, maybe a little too much personal information, but so I'm doing a large scale event in Kansas city, not large scale, like 50 people. They want me to come and do a dinner and it's a retirement dinner for a guy. And, and I, this, this company is one of those companies that, that probably doesn't have a great name, if you will, this is past the great recession, but we still remember the name because they were one of those companies that was kind of maybe taking advantage of a few people in all this. And, but the guy that the retirement is for is a guy I like, I really like this guy. And, and so I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do the gig. And so I'm working with a chef and, and they re- they, they go to unbelievable expense to put this thing together. They ran out this most beautiful, place. they're just spending a fortune. They hire this incredible string quartet. It just goes on and on and on. And the day before the event, I get a phone call and it's like, Oh, Hey, doug it's so and so listen uh, about the retirement party uh tomorrow um he's in the hospital I'm like oh my god is he okay he's like well he's doing okay but no he's gonna be in the hospital i was like oh wow okay well um you know i i probably should we should maybe talk about a cancellation fee or something like that i mean not much he went no no no, no we're still gonna do it i'm like you're just gonna have a party that costs a million dollars just because you wanted to yeah yeah it's, it's okay you know, I mean, they're, so they just decide to do this party anyway. I am now kind of pissed off because this is like just the height of 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 arrogance, if you will, or at least I took it this way. And so the party starts, and and I'm kind of on my own. I'm serving fifty people wine, sort of on my own, because the, the uh the the crew isn't all completely engaged, but the food's going well. Everything's fine. You know, it's just kind of, I'm having to, I've got one man and one woman that I'm pressing into service. As soon as they're done dropping plates, I'm like, great, finish up table two and three, you know, la la la, I'm doing this. And, um, I stopped and I looked around the room and I was very intent upon serving these people as best I could. And they knew me, or at least many of them knew who I was. And they were like, oh, Doug, oh, you know, that's Kansas City. So, you know, it's uh, two million people, but small enough. And And then... One of the servers would come by and they'd be sort of dismissive of them. And then I would say something to the server or we'd interact with the table in some way. And and I guess what I mean by this is I stood back and I looked at this group and I said, you know, I'm, I've got pretty left-wing political views. I can be pretty, uh, as my wife would point out, I can be a little too hateful at times. Uh, I can get all caught up in that. But I had... None of those feelings at that moment. Instead, my view was, these are my people right now. I need to serve them as best I could. And it suddenly occurred to me that this is the point that, that as I was trying to serve them as best I possibly could and make this a perfect evening for them, despite my feelings about how this happened to be, that to some degree, maybe that 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 they saw that in the way I treated the servers and maybe they treated the service different. In other words, when we serve each other willingly and completely, maybe we demonstrate to each other that there is a different way to be, that we're not here just to try to soak each other for every dollar or every moment that we can, that maybe serving each other demonstrates there's a different way we can act towards each other. And, 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 and that's all probably a little too exalted, but man, it was, it was one of those, I get it. that, I'm still here. I'm st- this is why I'm still here. I, I, I love this. This is good for me. This makes me feel good. <laughs> Even if it doesn't make them feel good. I'm trying to make them feel good, but it definitely makes me feel good.
0: Well, it verges on secular religion, right? Yeah, it, it did. It
1: absolutely did for me at that moment. Yeah, I'm not a religious person. But for me, it was like, if this isn't why humans exist, what the hell are we here for?
0: So I guess just to swing it back to the, the wine and the spirits thing, when you look at one or the other, do you see things that correlate? Do you say like, oh, okay, I can see how that changed in wine and that changed in spirits or the other way around?
1: There's certainly these parallel tracks, you know, that, that wine gets full of itself and becomes more and more complicated. And the people who serve it become full of themselves and convinced that they're their affection for something obscure which makes them feel so important is really so Im- everyone else should see how important they are. And and you know the same thing has happened with spirits as, as well. But I will say this, I always use my wife as the best example because th- this is true. This is <laughs> my wife, when I say, oh there's wine trip, I'm gonna go here, blah blah blah, you want to come along? She's like, mm, "Want no no, I'm like, "Oh, I'm going to go on a thing there's going to be a cocktail competition. I'm going to judge at it." And she's like, "Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I'll go with I like yeah, sure. I'll go with you." She now maybe it's partly cuz I knew her when I met her she was a cocktail waitress, but but still, she honestly thinks we wine people are incredibly tiring and boring and just you know all we do and if somebody says oh i had the most amazing wine the other day it was blah 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 and then you know she's like then you to ask them well what vintage was it and they go oh well you know it was a, a 2007 and then you immediately respond oh well you should try the 2005 i mean so you know and i'm like no no we're just talking this is fun for us she's like no it's just one upsmanship that's all it is she's like the bartenders never do that stuff they don't go well you should try the 18 year old they just go yeah that's awesome man <laughs> you know <laughs> and then they pour it in a glass and everybody drinks it and smiles
0: They do try to stir with like four different things with two hands. Man, I
1: still can't do the left-handed stir. I got my, you know, I'm fine on the right-handed stir. I I should probably just spend an afternoon getting that down because it looks so awesome.
0: But what about the effect of brands? I mean, I feel like brands have been such a big part of the spirits business, liquor sales, and then maybe changing now into a different kind of brands.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting thing, and 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 there, to your point, there maybe wine and spirits. Have diverged or were divergent for a long time. Maybe they're coming closer together. I'm not sure. It it is that, that, as you say, spirits brands were. You know, that was the thing. I mean, when I was getting started, there were four gins. There's like almost 500 now, and 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 so it was more an issue of you identified yourself by the brand that you liked. You identified yourself so often with a category that you drank. Oh, I'm a whiskey man. I'm a gin man. You know, blah blah, and and. That has all evaporated. It's a much more diverse world now, and maybe closer to the wine world in the sense that no one can know it all. There's nobody who can taste it all. There's just no way in hell somebody can say, "Oh, Yo, well, you know, I basically have tasted everything that's available from there." It's like, <laughs> no, you probably haven't. You just think you have. It's it's far more diverse, and and so maybe um, maybe the strength of brands is just as frankly that the strength of brands was never as strong on wine as everybody took it to be. I mean, Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola both came to wine and left w- with their tails dragging between their legs. I mean, they 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 did not win. They did not succeed. Now, of course, today the world is very different. It, we think that something like 93% of all wine bought and sold in the USA is imported or made by 13 companies only. That's, you know, nuts when there's tens of thousands of companies out there or wineries or or what have you. and And with brands of spirits, it's diversifying. Then, of course, what the brands are doing is they're buying up all the little guys. So it's more a parallel track, I think, to the craft beer business. And and where this ends up, I don't know. I I, I will say what's important about it is that when Evan got Steve and I, Evan Goldstein got Steve Olson and I together to create this uh, Sterling School that we created a quarter century ago, our goal, you know, Steve and I had as a goal from the outset to convince people to taste the spirits blind, just as we taste wine blind and decide if it's appropriate or not. Not to look at the bottle, not to look at the bullshit on the, on the you know, the POS or on the, the marketing that they gave you, not the, the frosted, whatever it is, none of that. All that matters is what's the liquid inside. And we were at that point already as a culture, completely comfortable doing that with wine. It was important that we become comfortable doing that with spirits. And I think we're virtually there.
0: Something that you do in your approach is that you talk a lot about maybe this thing that someone is tasting is being perceived differently by someone else. And we need to keep that as a key point that maybe not everyone has the same palate. And I don't know if maybe Tim Hanai had an effect on your thinking about sensory evaluation. Hell yeah. No, Tim,
1: Tim has always been, you know, one of those guys that likes to, to, you know, make stuff rattle around in your head and he's fun to argue with. and, and, it wasn't, uh, I always insist that a lot of what Tim was saying for me wasn't alien stuff. I live in Kansas City, for God's sakes. I, I've observed for years that there are people who like sweet wines, there are people who like dry wines. You can't, I'm not going to tell somebody they're wrong, especially in so much as I love sweet wine. So I was, as I say, I was drinking German wines like crazy. And and so were a lot of my other buddies, and we were drinking sweet German wines. And, and so when somebody would come along and say, well, you know, those aren't very good wines, <laughs> you look at them like, okay, clearly one you're an idiot. Two, that that doesn't reflect reality. Three, I guess it actually does reflect the reality in the sense that your experience of that sweet wine must be different than mine, or you wouldn't say that. Just as when Robert Parker would freak out over 100-point wine, I would taste it and I'd find it brutally tannic. It, I'm hypersensitive bitter. And it suddenly made sense to me. Oh, he likes it because he's not. I don't like it because I am hypersensitive bitter. And uh, talking to Tim, it was so great because I had the sense that this is how the world was, but suddenly Tim had a theory for why the world was that way. You know, I bought it hook, line, and sinker and still believe that this is exactly how it is. Just like fingerprints. We all have a different experience of food, of drink, of beverage, of aroma, of flavor, of texture. And that's why we eat and drink different things. Now, as writers, of course, now what do we do with that? And, and what you do with it is you try to give as close a description to what it's going to be like as possible. And hopefully, as readers, you figure out, oh, Parker likes some big, full, tannic alcohol, not a problem. VA, not a problem. Britannomyces, not a problem. If you like a wine like that, buy the man's wines. Um, and, and I think he's incredibly consistent and incredibly smart and a great taster, but he tends to like different wines than I do. Doesn't make him wrong. Doesn't make me wrong. It, it, it just, for me, convinced me uh, th- a- as I went through my career and saw the difference of opinion from smart, well-intentioned people. The only explanation is it's, it's a different experience.
0: For me, that idea about how sensory evaluation is different based on the people really dovetails with your service aesthetic of you need to make all these different people happy and they're all asking you for something different. Those are of a piece. Where one kind of completes the other
1: yeah I, I i I'm sure you're right. I think that you're absolutely right. I think they are based in the same world and and they're based on the same evidence, you know, on
0: the same life experience and and so, yeah. You're kind of like the Montessori school of so many years. You're like, well, we need to figure out where the child is exactly. and we need to bring him along. And maybe the child's smarter than me. Like that, you know, it's kind of yeah, exactly like that, that. Kind
1: of... Yeah, it has to be like, here's the, here's the uh, cellar. You just go find something over there and you should play with that for a little while. Let's see how that goes. You can just play in that area. You don't have to come over to these areas over here. You just play in that area for a while.
0: No rules, no, no rules. rules.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> so... When did you decide to really kind of leave a full-time employment with someone and, and do consultancy on a number of different projects?
1: Without question, that was that moment that Evan had come up with the Sterling School of Service and Hospitality, and Olson had been on his own at this point for several years. And he said, you know, you need to do this. You need to take the jump. This is when you can take the jump because this job will pay you enough. It won't pay you everything you need but it'll pay you enough that now you can take the jump and go look for other stuff and try to fill in the, in the blanks with, with other things. So that was really it. And I was in a great situation. I had passed my, <laughs> I like pointing out to people, I passed my MS and passed my MW and I'm the guy that went back to the restaurant business after that. Everybody else leaves the restaurant business when they get their MS. So I went back to the restaurant business and the guy who hired me to work the American restaurant and to manage the beverage programs of three other restaurants and a retail store said, we get it you're going to need to be on the road sometimes. You do that. And so for a while, I coexisted. But as Steve Olson pointed out to me, he said, you know, don't you think we've got enough of these gigs now? Don't you think you should go ahead and and jump? And I felt strongly that I could. And it it was, you know, it was never perfect, but we paid the bills and we lived in Kansas City. And my wife always, almost always worked. She always worked part-time at least because when the kids Uh, We're little for a time. I was on the road so much, it it really started working out better that she went part-time. And like I said, we needed help raising the kids, really, because I was gone a lot.
0: When I look at Steve Olson and Evan Goldstein and yourself, what I see are are people that are fluid presenters, fluid public speakers, not a lot of ums and ahs and hmm, I don't know, you know, people who can kind of keep it rolling.
1: Well, Steve and I both come out of the theater. We both were, you know, theater guys. So, and then that was part of it. The fact that I had to leave the theater or at least I left theater and couldn't really get any traction doing any video work or anything like that and found a job in in wine meant immediately, well, I want to do wine presentations. This is fun. And I could get my jollies. And it's like the ultimate in improvisation. You never know anybody's going to say about wine. Half the time you don't even know the wine, you know, it's pure improv. And That was fun. That was absolutely part of the charge that I got out of it. Evan's background as a restaurateur, I think, informs his great understanding, but he's just this really uh, naturally good, fluid presenter. He's pretty remarkable that way. Um, Whereas I would say with Steve and I, we were in theater, so you've, you've been trained to try to keep an audience there, try to keep them in your sights and keep them running along with you in whatever direction you're running.
0: I don't mean to constantly make this point that you're an older dude, right? But (laughs) you know, when I look at a lot of younger people who maybe do speaking, I feel like a lot of it's like you know the thing you have to realize is that this guy's got his hands in the soil and he's great, and then that's kind of the deal. Like they're not, you know, they're not rattling off these are the percentages. This is the and. I don't mean there's anything wrong with that. I just mean it's a different style. It's, yeah. it's kind of from a different time a little bit. Do you feel that way too, or do you? I,
1: I do. I, I think that everything's changing, everything's evolving, and the style that works for me is is a personal style. And and the, those other presenters that I see that I think are wonderful presenters have chosen a style that's them. That That's that thing that be honest, be yourself, be who you are, tell people what you think. But it's also, I love the great Marshall McLuhan line, anybody who thinks there's a difference between education and entertainment doesn't understand either one. That we as sentient creatures, I want to be entertained while I'm learning, but learning actually is entertaining. It can be if you you figure out how to make it a personal story, how to bring out the stuff that's human and get rid of the stuff that's just numbers and, and crap and such. And there'll always be exceptions. I'm fascinated, as all of us are, by by certain things we think are so important, such fantastic details, and people in the audience are letting their minds wander. You know, the grocery store, I should probably get... I need to fill up a g- Oh, what was he talking about again? So, wait, he was on about Garnacha? Seriously, are we still talking about Garnacha? You know, it's like... So everybody has their style, but the people who... I think, just do great public presentation. Do it because they're speaking from the heart, from their own personal experience, and then trying to engage an audience to find their personal experience and see where the two interconnect. That, that's it. I mean, the, you're trying to make connections between people's experiences.
0: In the podcast world, a lot of times when you talk to other podcasters, you know, it took me like 5, 10, 50, 100 shows to be me on the mic. Right. Yeah, You hear yeah. that sometimes where people, yeah. they're trying to be somebody else. They're trying to be Mark Marin, They're trying to be, yeah, Howard Stern, Terry Gross. Well, you know, there's, yeah. people have a model and they're trying to be that person. Weird Al Yankovic. Right? <laughs> yeah. But do you, would you have a tip to someone or something from your own life experience where you did get more in touch with yourself as a public persona? Obviously the theater training would have helped with that, but were there time, because you just said the key is to be you. Publicly, and if you can touch into that, then you can make a better connection with the listeners on an entertainment level. I imagine, as we've talked about a couple times in this interview, everyone's different, right? So, everyone's yeah. coming from a different place. Are there things that kind of helped you go like, "Yeah, that's Doug. Somebody else is Douglas. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be me here publicly." Were there moments like that?
1: Yes, no question about it. What I would say is that my theater training taught me that, you know, when an audience is with you and when they're not. And it's a very palpable feeling. And once you become sensitive to that, you, you know, and, and listen, when you lose them, you lose them. And, you know, getting them back is going to be really difficult, if not impossible. Um, Anecdotes, stories, stories are what, make people connect to each other. So a personal story, most of the time when I'm looking at my notes, such as they are, and I try to, to work without notes as much as I can, a lot of times it's just factoids on there because I already know the stories I'm going to tell. If it's a, an entirely new, for instance, if it, it, I've, I've probably almost never been asked to speak about Burgundy, which is still maybe if if I were to you know, do the last meal thing and be like, can I get some, Get can I get me some 62 litosh? Because I had that two or three times in my life. And I just think one more time and do the trick. You know, I love this stuff, but I don't, I couldn't even tell you the last time I gave a burgundy lecture. And so I'd have to sit down and write my notes. But the first thing I would do would be to write one or two words that tells me, tell this story, then tell this story, then tell this story and put them in the right order so that there's an, you know, an arc to it all. And so that people, most importantly, so that you're, creating a lesson it's it's why sometimes i think my writing isn't ideal for a lot of people because i have an interest in trying to teach them something i honestly am not there just to entertain i I'm, i'm there to teach. I'm trying to be an educator. I think that's what wine needs. Now, at some point, wine won't need that and it won't need me. So that's all cool. But anyway, does that answer the question? It does.
0: (laughs) Um, And I think you just explained it in a very dug way, right? So, you know, I think you are in touch with yourself. But I guess one question I would have for you is how much do you rehearse before you do public speaking? Or is it somewhat spontaneous or all spontaneous? the only thing I
1: would ever rehearse would be the opening and the close. Um, Usually because so often we work with other people and everybody has their role. And I'm like, but can we talk about how we're going to open real quick? Because that's very critical. It sets the pace. And usually nobody ever pays any attention to how we close. And that helps a lot. That helps people know, okay, good. I get it. We're done. I see what was happening. Um, And somebody like Evan is very organized. So he'll state from the outset, here's where we're going to go. I'm, no, I want you to come on the ride. I want you to have no idea where we're going next. Then when we get to the end, I want to say, now look, see where we went, you know? So everybody has their way of doing it. For me, I wouldn't rehearse much, but I would definitely, I often am repeating the opening to myself over and over again as I'm sitting in an audience waiting to jump up because I don't want to look at the cards. I don't want to have cards. I want to stand up and say four or five things in a row. I want to get them in the right order. And then we're off to the races
0: openings are the time when I get the most nervous kind of sitting there as everyone's coming in and then, you know, your material, but you're starting to get, you know, butterflies.
1: It's how are we going to get this thing going? And are they going to be along for the ride that that's the tough part? You know, you don't know your audience yet. Once you get started, most of the time you see smiling faces out there and it's like, Oh, this is going to be fun.
0: You mentioned that sometimes it's difficult to be in the consultant world in terms of sometimes the finance come in, sometimes the finances don't come in. And, you, you know, you're waiting for the next project and you also have real life happening around you and bills to pay. So are there formatting ideas that people should have if they go into freelance consulting? Are there things that they should be thinking about, ways of approaching companies? Are there sort of borders to have in their mind? Because it is different than punching in for that regular nine to five or what was fortunate for me was that i had enough different experiences
1: that i can work with somebody in retail i can work with somebody in a restaurant i can work with a chef i can work with an editor i can i can write something i can do video i can do audio uh, you know uh, radio uh, so i could come at these uh, and, and then i could do the same with spirits as as well as wine and maybe to, certainly to a lesser degree beer and so i could bring a lot of different toys you know a lot of different uh, bullets in the gun as it were and and um, have greater opportunity to jump in when somebody says, well, we're kind of looking for something like this. I'm like, okay, I got an idea. But, but that's the critical piece, is you have to know enough about this client that you already know what they need. When they're interviewing you, you should be interviewing them because you already know what questions you need to ask. And it helps demonstrate to them that you're serious about this, that you've done your homework, that you get it, and now you have some ideas how they might fix it. Now, they may say, nope, That's not what we're going to do. And I don't like your ideas and go away. Or they may say, no, we've chosen to do it a different way, but I'll I'll think about what you said. Or they may say, this is the coolest thing I've heard. Let me go back to my people and see if we can find the funding for this. So it it is that, you know, have your, you know, your act together, have all those ducks in a row. So you've got a few different ideas in, in your back pocket if the first idea doesn't work out. And then if you're having to reach too far, it's probably the wrong gig. You know, don't be afraid to walk away.
0: So in a way, being a generalist helps because it allows you to do a bunch of different things, but then you also have to decide whether that's the right thing for you to be doing or for them to be hiring you for.
1: Yeah, and sometimes I have to bring other people in, certainly on the spirit side. I mean, I I spent uh, literally a season as a bartender a million years ago and as a a banquet manager, you know, worked banquet bars, for God's sake. So when it's time to do a gig with a lot of uh, cocktails, yeah, I can batch... Cocktails just fine. I, I know how to do that stuff. I can do that stuff. But working behind a bar with people three deep—forget about it. would be, that'd be your greatest nightmare. So I have to bring people in often, especially if we're going to lecture to bartenders. Bartenders know if you work or not. They know they. I always referred to myself as an amateur bartender. That I'm a home bartender. That, that's what I am. I make no great claims, and they appreciate that because they know they can they can see it in your your movements in your in the way you hold the tin the way you hold you know the the spoon. They can tell.
0: I think they look specifically for it these days. Yeah, they sure do. Like, I think before they used to look at how personable you were. You know, you're a Joe bartender, you're making yeah. someone feel comfortable. But yeah. now I think people are like, dude, what kind of ice? You know yeah. what I mean?
1: Oh, yeah. No, they're, they're, they're skills that we, uh, we did not realize were important. Um, as Dale DeGroff points out, Dale's always like, you know, back in the day, it's like, get behind the bar. If you have a question, bartender Bible right there. You know, Mr. Right. Boston's in the drawer. That's that's what happened with me. It's like, Mr. Boston's in the drawer if you need it. Somebody to order a drink I hadn't heard of. I'm like, hang on, flip, 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 flip. Oh yeah, I got this. And then I'd put it together. And, and at these days now people are like, no, You need to see what the ethos is behind this bar, how we do things, You need to study the cocktail programs. It's taken much more seriously. And I'm grateful as hell for that. I really am. Even though, as you say, it turns into people beating you up over the size and and the, the density of your ice.
0: What are some of the takeaways on some of the big gigs? You know, you've picked wines for like United Airlines and things like that. I've never done that. If I were picking wine for an airline, what would I be thinking about? I mean, what happens when you pick wines for an airline? Oh that's yeah that's
1: a that's a big gig it's a tough gig logistics are enormous ginormous challenges and i don't understand them fortunately with united from the outset it was look I can't do logistics. I can't figure out how to get 500 cases here and 700 cases into Japan. And we're going to, meanwhile, pick up 5,000 cases from Southern France. You know, none of that. No, forget it. I I know enough to be dangerous only in, in that stuff. So it was, here's what I can do. I can pick the wines and I will pick wines that create enough diversity. And that was the key to me is that with the wine programs I saw in those days although my predecessor was great got, Bob Thompson the great wine writer was my predecessor and you know just following in his footsteps I didn't want to screw up you know but but it was I need diversity I want to make sure there's a diversity of flavor and texture and character and style so anybody will find a wine they like that it's not just all California style not just all French in style or whatever it is you know um so the 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 gig is i think ultimately understanding what it is that your client needs you to do and then do it in a transparent fashion so that, that it's clear why you've made the decisions and and they can jump in front of any of them uh, it was very important for me in the early days with united to to be cognizant of certain things there were certain issues that the the management at that time had with certain wines I can't tell you why but you better figure it out quickly and not try to shove that wine down their throat or even one guy I can remember he was all he had a pet peeve on a particular word and it was like a word we would often use to describe wine well I stopped using that word around him or never in the text or never in any of the literature that we put out there because he hates it I can't explain why but I'm not going to try to convince him differently I'm trying to work within the culture that exists I'm always a consultant you know it's not my culture I'm not here to change it I'm here to influence it i hope and influence it for the better but you can't change a you know a corporate culture by yourself as a consultant forget it
0: so what have been some of the real takeaways from the different faucets of that over time were there times where you tried to put a square peg into a round hole and it didn't work and that really stood out for you or vice versa were there big successes because you realized something about a culture or what expectations were that <laughs> really worked
1: yeah it's uh well we boarded at you know, mavro Merleau Syrah blend uh, on United, and we boarded a Muscofilero. I love these wines. I was so happy. I'd been waiting years to board them. We'll not be boarding them anytime soon again, (laughs) because clearly I was getting out in, in front of my customers a little bit, you know. You have to be fairly mainstream in a situation where thousands and thousands and thousands of people are going to interact with this wine list. And it's unlikely that anybody is going to stand next to them and go, let me tell you about Muscofilero. It says here, it smells really floral and sweet, but it's bone dry. Doesn't that sound exciting? And it's from Greece, you know, it's like none of that happened. So that was a great disappointment. Um, on the other hand, I bided my time and, I, and I, I decided that my timing was perfect. This is, of course, years ago now, but I was pushing for screw cap wines. We need screw cap wines. They're really good wines. And let's, why are we fighting this? Why, are, why do you still want to have to drag a cork out of a, a bottle of wine? And in particular, the flight attendants were sort of pushing back up in arms. Our customers far too serious about wine and far too elegant to want to have a screw cap wine. And of course, I knew my timing was perfect when we finally did the switch switchover, or started including them because I got a note from <laughs> a flight attendant, might've been the same one who uh, accused me of trying to downgrade the experience, who said, I don't know why you people waited so long on screw caps. I mean, this should have happened years ago. And I'm like, I think I must've gotten the timing just right. Cause these two letters you know, we're only about a year apart, so I think I, I think I hit that one right. <laughs> so I'm just looking for the zeitgeist, if you will, that allows me to, I I mean, the zeitgeist that allowed me six or seven years ago to go, we're going with Malbec. And I honestly caught a beverage committee that said, oh, no, 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 those wines are very inexpensive. And no, and I'm like, no, no, they're a serious Malbec. Trust me on this, this will work. And immediately we had good feedback. So there's those constant experiences of trying to figure out what's the zeitgeist, what can I get away with now? And maybe just to confuse the matter even further, in most cases with the United, I'm making a decision a year before it happens, so I've definitely got to just you know wet my finger and stick it up to the wind and, and hope I got it right.
0: Because I can only imagine that over the length of your career, you've seen wines be very uncool or very cool, and then later the opposite. You've probably seen things that were considered tray cool, very allocated, become sort of blasé or passé, and you've probably seen things that nobody wanted become super hip. So, how do you react to that?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. It's a it's. The Gentos d'Airview is always my touchstone on that, because I was the Kermit Lynch wholesaler way back in the day, and I would try to tell people how great this wine was, and eventually I would just take all the bottles home, because nobody really, they're like, wait, $28 wholesale for a coat Roti? You're out of your mind. I'm like, no, 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 this is so special. And he's so special. And I'd gotten to meet him. And, and so, you know, nowadays I pull out Gento's d'Air Vieux, and the sommeliers are all like, unicorn, ah, you know. Well, I remember
0: I, that happened once because it was a big Instagram sensation. Like you oh, were at an right, MS yeah. thing and you pulled yeah. one out. I wasn't there, but I saw it on like 50 feeds. I had taken that same wine, cut root tea
1: from Marius Gentas Dervieux, to events in previous years, and no one gave a crap. You know, nobody gave a shit. It was like, oh yeah, well, that's kind of stinky, isn't it? Yeah, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, it, it makes me take it all with a certain grain of salt, because so much fashion is involved in this, and 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 that's okay, that's fine, but. A lot of times people take that fashion side of things a little too seriously, that this is great and everything else stinks. And that's bullshit. You know, that's crazy. There's a lot of good wine around this world. We had this conversation earlier today. I was talking to Ray Isle about this issue that he said, you know, there's very little bad wine now, but there's an ocean of pedestrian, just ordinary wine and very few wines that are really great. And he's right, but I'd also say, yeah, but there's a lot of people for whom that so-called ocean of ordinary wine really flips their trigger. It may not flip your trigger because your experience has been this wine or that wine or this this other wine from the same area or same grape or what have you. But this may be the revelatory moment for them. And, and maybe Colombo is a good example of that. No, it's not No Versailles Cornas. Um, but it's pretty damn good cornos. And when people go, oh, yeah, it's very, you know, very just international in style. No, it's not. I can put that in a tasting. You spot it a mile away. Come on, man. It's just because they're not hip and cool doesn't mean they're not making good wine. Because you you get mail from people saying, I don't know why you're boarding this wine. I just don't really think it's very good. I'm like, because I think Jean-Luc Colombo is cool. And I know it's not cool for me to think he's cool. I'm supposed to pick little tiny guys. But you know what? Jean-Luc is funny and he's cool and he makes good wines and, and Laura's daughter makes good wines now too. So damn it, you know, so there's a lot of emotion uh, uh, around wines and a lot of those wines that I have selected. There's an emotional reason why. And, and I've stopped trying to pretend that that's not true. If, if I ever did, I think the, the thing is that that is part of the content of wine is that emotional side. And when you get a chance to create that experience, then it's okay to try to share it. And if it doesn't work for everybody, just be attuned to that, attentive to that. But for me, a lot of it is that, that I, I'm just trying to show people wines that I think have personality. Most of the time they come from people
0: that have personality. Back to that gen test thing. Did you meet him in the cellar or did you?
1: Yeah, I went, I went to visit and, uh, it's on that list of the religious experience, you know, for me, just because he was the sweetest man. He was just amazing. So was Noel Versailles, just the sweetest man. And I just, and talking to him and trying to learn about why he made wines the way he did it changed my view of wine. It changed my understanding of of that grape and that place and all that. And I just was, it was much about tasting the wine. Okay, one of the questions for for uh, <laughs> Mario's, because you know I was a young kid trying to understand. I was like, I looked through the cellar and there's nothing but old barrels. They're all you know big punchins and and that and we're talking about that and the way it interacts. And I said, but this barrel, man, this is this is old. How old is this? And he just kind of looks at me like, what the hell are you asking me? It's a ginza you know, I don't know. Why would I know how old it is? And that was. Oh, right. He doesn't give a damn about the age of these barrels. This is something I was trained to give a damn about. It's an American thing. He doesn't give it. The only reason you have a new barrel is an old one broke. (laughs) And it was like oh, maybe I need to chill out a little bit and just listen to the wine itself. And and so we would talk about the the way the wine acted differently, not in different barrels, but this was, the wine was just different. It was just, you know, it was almost like, no, the barrel is just the vessel. Yeah, the barrel is talking to it, but no, this is just a different wine in this barrel, even though they, you know, all blended together at some point in time. It was, it was t- approach wine like a living thing. Um, what I saw, the 10 years or so probably that I got to see, maybe, I don't know, maybe a few years more than that, that I got to taste them every single vintage was enormous vintage variation, as there should be, as as seemed appropriate. Um, uh, talking to Marius uh, again about that issue, that he's not here to make a gentile interview, quote, Ruti, <laughs> he's to make that happens to come from this vineyard in this year um and and that's what he does and and um, with rostang probably uh well I, again i liked his wines very very much but they were very different and and much more compact and less loose and less free-flowing
0: if you will so was the rhone thing something you connected with with steve because he was a big rhone guy
1: uh, we probably did. I hadn't thought about that before, but I was a I was kind of a Roan fanatic from from the get-go. Uh, it was one of those wines that I immediately gravitated towards. <laughs> I, I can tell a true story that, you know, back in the day when I'm a waiter, that I immediately got into wine, as I, I say, once I started hanging out with this group of, of people in Kansas City. And so you take a nice bottle of wine to a party – Well, what do you get out of it? A glass? So I I learned really early on. And and in fact, even before I was a wholesaler, I hooked up with the wholesaler and said, I need you to always have half bottles of Bocastel on the floor because those are my party wines. Uh, Because a half bottle, you pull the cork take a swig out of it, out of the bottle, and then you stick it in your pocket. No one can steal your wine. And when you're hanging out with a bunch of waiters, that's a problem. These people are thieves, okay? They're like, Castle, right on. Glup, 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 glup. it's like, dude, that's my wine. Oh, uh, you know, well, you left it on the counter. It's like, no, I kept a half bottle and I keep another half bottle in my car. You know, so when I go through that first half bottle, I'm still good.
0: <laughs> so looking back over all these years, what's making you happy these days i mean i feel like there's been so many evolutions so many uh, career moves so many projects so many people have come through over the years i mean i guess every so often you have to kind of look at what's filling your tank right mm-hmm. so yeah. these days what is it
1: um i'm not sure i i it it's a I, i'm Always in transition, so I'm I'm often too busy transitioning to think about um, where I'm at and and why I'm there. I, again, I still live opportunistically. I have been writing for the Kansas City paper for 28 years, and they basically have shut us all down. Uh, we don't, you know, James Beard Award winning food section, and now it's just going to be a bunch of wire stuff. And then the wonderful woman who edited it for years, Jill Silva, she'll stay there, but the rest of us are all moving on or or not, you know, <laughs> as it were. Uh, where do we go? There's not enough places to write anymore. Um, that, that kind of sucks. So I, I need to think about that and, and, and figure out, um, what I can do about that because that's what fills my tank on a regular basis is, is getting to write. And, uh, there's not enough places to write anymore. And, um, it's It's okay. that's that's how it works. i I'll just have to figure that one out. but the the satisfaction I get out of having worked with these great people in the Master Sommelier program and the Master of Wine program, and in some small measure, hopefully helping those organizations keep going forward. and uh, certainly the bar program with with uh, Olson and Dale degroff and and david wondrich and and andy Seymour and and Paul Packle. man, that's been nothing but fun. I'm really quite proud of that because because I think we've helped. At least, kind of create uh, a sense of what's important in the bar scene. It's not us creating that importance; <laughs> it's more us being there to sort of document it, if you will. And and that helps everybody get a sense of where the industry is at. And I and I hope we've been a we've been good actors in that. I just want to keep being a good actor. Uh, and I know I you know the old Burroughs line. I know I'm not always a good actor, and and I'm usually not aware of that. So I gotta keep getting better at that, and that that's the you know that's the piece that that fills the tank is being uh, being polite and respectful to other people. It's so easy when you hear the same question over and over again to to stop answering it or to not give a damn about the person who asked it well, hell man, this is the first time they talk to you they they don't know you've been asked that question a hundred times in the last six months, and you you're you, talking about this interview right now. <laughs>
0: No, I'm not. Ask me another one about United, douche. (laughs) (laughs) I've only heard that 10,000 times. See what I
1: mean about being a complete (laughs) dick and not being aware of it? You know, I just completely stepped in that dog pile right there, and then I just kind of smeared it around on your carpet and and went, what? Looks better
0: now, honestly. It's not that great of a carpet to begin with. (laughs) Doug Frost is a man who's always in transition, but who values being true to himself. Thank you very much for being here today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Levy.
0: Doug Frost is a master sommelier and master of wine who's based in Kansas City. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs